All right. Guess what? I come here prepared to talk about digestion and absorption. And what do I hear? Vomiting reflex. That was quite a combination. So now you have it all, right? It's good that you get the whole picture from all kinds of classes. What we will talk about in digestion and absorption in biochem is mostly related then to biochemistry. And there will be overlap, of course, but I think that will be good for you. All right, ready to go? Now, digestion starts with the mouth and continues on in the stomach and small intestine. That's why we have grouped that. And the absorption takes place at the intestinal mucosa itself. So these two lectures deal with digestion and absorption. Normally, we have not a food group just by itself. We have a mixed food group. And if we have carbohydrates, we ask ourselves, what's the medical importance of dietary carbohydrates? And carbohydrates, no matter what different diets are there, they are a major component for energy metabolism. And the carbohydrates, they provide mainly glucose, galactose, and fructose. So these are the three sugars that we will dealing with when we talk about digestion and absorption. And if we don't use the glucose, as you know, it's uh, stored as glycogen for later use. Now, a diet rich in sugar here can lead to health issues such as obesity and diabetes. So here you have the granulated table sugar, but here you have the donuts. It's dangerous, even much more dangerous, as these donuts do not have only a lot of sugar. They have sometimes um, sugar rich in fructose, and they have trans fats. So be careful on that side. And high-carbohydrate diet can also lead to fatty acid synthesis in the liver, as you have seen. And then uh, the sugars end up as fats in your hips. Yeah? So they can be stored as triacylglycerols in fat cells. So I said we have a mixed diet normally. So what's the medical importance of dietary proteins? Dietary proteins provide amino acids, and not only the... Uh, dietary essential amino acids, but the whole spiel of amino acids, and they are used after absorption in many cells for protein synthesis and other functions. Now, if we look at perfect score regarding dietary essential amino acids, milk, eggs, and soybeans are the winner, and then it's followed by meats. So milk and eggs, soybeans, they have the perfect score regarding dietary essential amino acids when you eat it, and it's followed by meats. Now with meats, and that is not related to proteins, but uh, nucleotide metabolism, a diet rich in red meats can lead to high uric acid levels and gout. So that is uh, the purine nucleotides we will see are already Digest, uh, transformed into uric acid in the intestinal mucosa cell. It never even makes it to the liver. So that is, uh, if you have a patient that has gout problems, uh, definitely with the diet, that can be a help. All right, now, finally we come to the lipids, and you see here the good ones on top, the bad ones below. So what is the medical importance of dietary lipids? They can be a major component for an energy metabolism. Uh, if you degrade a fatty acid, you can get about 129 ATPs from one fatty acid alone. So it's, it's uh, very important for energy metabolism. Very often, however, we eat too much and we eat the wrong kind, and then that can be also a problem. But in general, they provide fatty acids, and we can store them as triacylglycerols. And here also we have dietary essential molecules. The dietary essential fatty acids are required for membrane fluidity and synthesis of eicosanoids. Fatty acids of the omega-3 family have been shown to protect against cardiovascular disease 
And definitely one should not have a diet that contains trans fatty acids. That is now very strong in the thoughts. In the past, it was always cholesterol was the bad thing. That is not what we think in the moment anymore. It's the trans fats and a certain type of saturated fatty acids, palmitates, that we should not eat. So you see here, these trans fats, they are hidden here. And this is a big mouth. Who eats that? I wondered how you can even tackle that. But that is left up to you to visualize, or better not to visualize, okay? All right, digestion in the mouth. I'm talking about the mouth. Starts with carbohydrate digestion, and the enzyme is found in the saliva. It is salivary alpha amylase, and it cleaves the alpha-1 for glycosidic bonds of starch and glycogen, and it forms branched oligosaccharides. And then we have here lingual lipase. It's a lipase. It's an enzyme that cleaves lipids, and it's lingual. It's, from, uh, it's released in the oral cavity, but is mainly swallowed and will be active in the, the stomach. Now, in the stomach, we have a high proton concentration, and you have already heard about it, and you know already where the cells are, uh, chief cells are, and parietal cells. But I want to bring this in again, how that is important for digestion. So if an individual sees things about food, sight, smell, taste, chewing, or even a full stomach that leads to the release of gastrin from the gastric gland. And gastrin now leads to the release of hydrochloric acid from parietal cells. And you should know that the chief cells release pepsinogen and gastric lipase. Hydrochloric acid is a strong acid, and it denatures the food for quicker digestion and at the same time, if you have enough hydrochloric acid, it already starts to destroy bacteria and fungi that are in the food. What it does to pepsinogen, which is uh, an enzyme that is in its zymogen form, needs proteolytic activation, this hydrochloric acid alters the conformation, and now something on uh, very interesting happens. This pepsinogen, under the effect of HCl, cannot do it when HCl is not there. It cleaves itself. And we have the active protease pepsin by autocatalytic activation. So I'm here. Pepsinogen was synthesized, kicked out into the HCl pool. This makes a change in me. And I'm able now to get rid of one part of me. Configuration change, and I'm active. Pepsin. Uh, pepsin, which makes sense, has a pH optimum at pH 2, which is the perfect pH then in the lumen of the stomach. Now, if I have low levels of gastric hydrochloric acid, that can, of course, interfere with the activation of pepsinogen to pepsin. And it leads to less effective digestion of proteins. This is common in the elderly, and the HCL production declines with age. It can also result from excessive ingestion of antacids in individuals who use these drugs to treat acid reflux. So, if an individual just loves the colored uh, goodies here and eats a lot of antacids, then they cannot digest well uh, proteins as pepsinogen cannot well be uh, activated to pepsin. Now, let's summarize the digestion in the stomach and we say, okay, carbohydrates... This digestion started in the mouth with salivary alpha amylase, and then you swallow everything. And what happens to that uh, salivary alpha amylase? It's a protein, and it is denatured. So that's the end of that activity. 
and it is used then the salivary amylase as a pool for, prote uh, for amino acid itself. It will be degraded and treated as if it would come from the food. The protein and lipid digestion starts in the stomach and we have acid-stable enzymes. You know you have the acidic chyme in the stomach and the enzyme pepsin is acid-stable and it degrades protein to large peptides. And the swallowed lingual lipase and the released gastric lipase, they are also stable and they like uh, high proton concentration. And they degrade triacylglycerols with medium-chain fatty acids. So if I have to, in the diet triacylglycerols with long-chain fatty acids, which is about 16 to 20, what we, it's, most of the triacylglycerols are like that, they are mainly degraded later. But milk, which is the nutrient for the newborn, is special. And in the synthesis of fatty acid de novo synthesis, we don't stop with palmitate. We stop also with a mixture with medium chain fatty acids. And milk has now triacylglycerols with a mixture. These medium chain fatty acids are better target when they are in triacylglycerols for the degradation already in the stomach. And what is important here, and I want to bring this out here already, that digestion of those medium chain tags, it's not the fatty acid that are digested, it's the triacylglycerols that have medium chain fatty acids, that does not need bile salts and that does not need enzymes from the pancreas. And now you think, how could that be important for helping people with cystic fibrosis? It can help as they are undernourished as cystic fibrosis of the pancreas, that's where the name comes from, they cannot release their digestive enzymes as normally for uh, food digestion. So if you have a patient with cystic fibrosis, you can give an alternative food mix which contains tags with medium-chain fatty acids. That helps them already. And there's another important part. These medium-chain fatty acids, they go directly to the liver and are available for energy metabolism there. All the long-chain fatty acids will have to be put into lipoproteins and eventually will be cleaved in the blood. All right? Now, here we have our chyme coming in here, the pH 1 to 2, that releases secretin. Secretin now is uh, releasing a secretion of bicarbonate and water from the pancreas. It's easy. Secretin leads to the secretion, bicarbonate and water. And what we see now, Varel's uh, pepsin and the gastric and lingual lipases were active at high proton concentration. I want to degrade further on with pancreatic enzymes, and they would be denatured they cannot work at high proton concentration. So it's a very important part for a good digestion that I change the pH and that here later on when the pancreatic enzymes come in here into the duodenum, I have a pH 6 to 7 to 8. It's a range. It depends how, how much you do have. And now if we have achieved this, then we can digest the food further on. And CKK, cholecystokinin, leads to release of pancreatic enzymes and bile uh, into the duodenum. So we have the chyme comes in, mostly the high proton concentration triggers the release of secretin, so that helps to uh, neutralize the pH. And then we have already products from amino acids and fatty acids from digestion in the stomach. And they trigger the release of cholecystokinin. 
Cholecystokinin, CCK, abbreviations, they always trap you. And they still trap me if I use it. This is why normally I don't use abbreviations. The very moment I say the whole word, I said, okay, that's a mistake. So here, cholecystokinin, CCK. Choli means bile, cysto means sac, kinin means move. You have here the gallbladder. And the name of cholecystokinin was that it leads to contraction of the gallbladder. What do you store in the gallbladder? Bile. So the bile comes out then. So it activates the release of bile from the gallbladder. The gallbladder had the function to concentrate the bile. And that is why if that is too much and you have an imbalance between the bile salts and free cholesterol, as we will see, you can end up with gallstones, cholesterol gallstones. They are yellowish. They are the most common, and they would be uh, very often found in the gallbladder. Cholecystokinin does something else. It inhibits gastric motility. Why would that be good? It said, stop putting more chyme in here. Stop with that. And let us first neutralize the content in the duodenum. Yeah? So if you have the stomach always pushing acidic chyme into it, it's hard to neutralize it. And after CCK also activates the release of enzymes or proenzymes from the pancreas, they want a nice pH. That is six, seven, eight in that range, but definitely not pH 2. And cholecystokinin does something else. It activates an enzyme that is called enteropeptidase in the duodenum. So visualize this is the cell of the duodenum. And I am enteropeptidase. Normally I sit close to the cell, close bound to the cell. And now CCK realizes, well, we have food coming in. We want food digestion. And it makes enteropeptidase go more into the lumen and activates it. And this enteropeptidase, in the past, Pavlo named it enterokinase, which was not very good. But if you find that, that's the same enzyme. Sits there, and here come all the uh, zymogens from the pancreas, and we talk about in a minute why you have to synthesize these enzymes as zymogens. And I'm sitting here and I check. There's only one cleavage site that I am interested, and that is trypsinogen has it. All the other zymogens don't have it. So CCK activates enteropeptidase in the duodenum that will start to activate trypsinogen to trypsin. And as I said, CCK also activates secretion of pancreatic enzymes, zymogens, and proteins. All right. Before we go further, let's just summarize what we have in a big picture of digestion and absorption of proteins. In the mouth, proteins are not degraded. More, some people swallow it faster than others, but it's not degraded in the mouth. What did we start to degrade in the mouth? Carbohydrates. So if you are nicely chewing, you are helping with your carbohydrate uh, digestion. And of course, you make the food smaller. Then in the pepsin, uh, in the stomach, pepsin degrades proteins, and pepsin cleaves in the middle of a protein, so you have a peptide left over. Then in the small intestine, we have pancreatic proteases, and they form oligopeptides and amino acids. And eventually, we will go here to the brush border cells. They have amino peptidases, and they make smaller peptides and amino acids. And to finish it up, all the amino acids are released into the portal vein and reach the liver. So whatever we eat in proteins here, the liver gets the first pick of the amino acids, of the dietary essential amino acids and of the others. Does that make sense? 
Absolutely. The liver synthesizes per day about 14 grams of albumin, which is a transport protein in, in, in the blood. So that's a lot of amino acid that it needs. Then it synthesizes the other serum proteins. So the liver gets the first pick. Now, I said we have to synthesize the pancreatic enzymes, and I've shown this here, in the pancreas. Then they will travel along the pancreatic duct and enter the duodenum. Now, if I am here in the, that's over there is the lumen, right? If I'm here in the pancreas still, if I would synthesize an active trypsin, trypsin cleaves proteins, what would that trypsin do? So, wow, wonderful, I love this here. I'm not going to go anywhere and I destroy the pancreas. And that is what can happen in acute pancreatitis. You have to make sure that trypsin is not formed in the pancreas. So pan uh, the trypsin is a longer precursor protein. It travels with the other fellow proenzymes until it reaches the duodenum. And here I said sits enteropeptidase screening. I said, oh, it comes there, and it cleaves it. So the local separation prevents premature activation, as trypsin is a powerful protease, and you will see it will activate other zymogens. So it starts like a snowfall, a snowball effect. So trypsinogen is the inactive zymogen and has this length here as, as an example of a protein. And then enteropeptidase in the duodenum waits for it, and it cleaves trypsinogen, and it cleaves a peptide, and now the trypsin is smaller, and it refolds into an active pocket. And now it is active. This activation of trypsinogen to trypsin by enteropeptidase is the major activation for protein digestion. So once trypsin is formed, then it starts to activate proteolytically, again, by its, which is an irreversible reaction, the following proteins for protein digestion. It can activate itself it can activate trypsinogen to trypsin. So now in no time you have all the trypsins active. And the trypsin act chymotrypsin, uh, activate chymotrypsinogen to chymotrypsin, proelastase to elastase, procarboxypeptidase to carboxypeptidases. At this moment I want to explain zymogens and proenzymes. They are the same. It's only too bad that people couldn't agree on one. A zymogen is also a molecule that has a larger amino acid uh, composition, and it will be cleaved like trypsinogen. It's a longer name to trypsin. And some people preferred proelastase. It's also a longer protein, and then you cleave part of it, and then you have elastase. So it's the same thing. They are all grouped as zymogens or proenzymes. And trypsin even goes further. It does not only activate the fellow zymogens for protein digestion. It activates procolipase to colipase. This is uh, an exception where when I told you ACE at the end always lets you know it's an enzyme. People love exceptions. That is one. It's a protein. It's not an enzyme. But it will help lipase. So colipase is a protein that will help, as, not as a coenzyme, as a co-helper, lipase. And then we have prophospholipase A2 to phospholipase A2. Why would I need to synthesize phospholipase A2 also as a zymogen? It cleaves phospholipids, and they are all over the place. So here again, we have to be very careful. 
so that the prophospholipase is synthesized and only in the lumen of the intestine, only there where I want to digest molecules, there it shall be active. Are you aware when you th talk about snake venom that that phospholipase A2 is in there that is very similar to the di digestive human one? When people uh, investigate phospholipase A2, they can use snake venom or pancreatic uh, phospholipase A2. They are very similar. And snake venom also has proteases. So exactly what you do not want in your blood, it's a very dangerous situation here in the stomach. I just want to point that out. And that's why we have all these zymogens. That's why we go through the local separation. As once you have the phospholipases active, phospholipase A2 active and the proteases active, they are meant only to act on the content of the food and not on phospholipid membranes. You remember phospholipid membranes full of phospholipids and full of proteins. And they are not meant to work in the cell. Now the pancreatic proteases, they work all together and they share the workload in a way that trypsin cleaves after arginine and lysine residues. Arginine and lysine residues, what do they both have in common? Are they charged, uncharged? They have a positive charge at the end. And trypsin, for example, this was chymotrypsinogen. Uh, now I cleave this arm. I make a conformation change, and I have a long pocket here where I can hold the side chain of arginine and lysine in there as at my elbow down here in my structure, I have a negative charge. So very specific trypsin is used also in research as it cleaves after arginine or lysine residues. You see this here. And trypsinogen is activated by enteropeptidase. Trypsin can cleave trypsinogen itself, but can also activate chymotrypsinogen to chymotrypsin. Now, chymotrypsin has a bulky uh, active pocket. And there, when it looks at a protein, these bulky aromatic side chains can be cleaved. Here they are mentioned, but I want you to know trypsin, arginine, and lysine residues, chymotrypsin, bulky and aromatic residues, and elastase after glycine. It's a very small pocket glycine, alanine, and serine. And then at the end, we have the carboxypeptidases. Uh, are you with me so far? Do you know what I'm expecting you to memorize? Okay. There's no sense in you memorize all these amino acids, but I want you to get an idea that they have a different uh, side po uh, uh, active pockets, and that's what will determine which protein uh, residues can, they can be held, and then they cleave it at the carboxyl end. So you see here in this cartoon, and I thought that was nice to be seen, that they all work together. So here is a protein elastase after glycine residue, chyrotrypsin after tyrosine, trypsin after lysine here. And then from the end, the carboxyl peptidases work. And what happens now? So here I said these proteases are meant only to act on protein of the di in the digestive, digestive tract, right? And they are very powerful as they can destroy the cell. So in the digestive tract, we do not have um, inhibition. We find in the digestive tract that they degrade each self. So they degrade each other. And they say, oh, you're, well, you are a protein. Phospholip phospholipase A2, for example, is a protein. And eventually, when the dietary protein is degraded and we have the amino acids, 
then these enzymes look around and eventually they will degrade each other. And that makes a lot of sense. And when you count the amino acids that we eat and the amino acids that we take up, we take much more up than we eat, as we eat practically our own enzymes. And that is nice, as they are precious molecules. Are you with me so far? I'm pointing out in blood clotting, you have a whole cascade of proteases that activate each other. Those molecules you have to inhibit. You know about antithrombin. You have to inhibit those molecules. But in the digestive lumen, they will degrade themselves. And I have a clicker question for you now. Please feel free to talk to each other. That is just fine. All right, that is an easy question, but it is very important. Enteropeptidase, I said, I played it there. It sits there, looks for amino acid sequence, and it finds it only in trypsinogen. All right, okay. So we have formed now these amino acids. How do we, now we talk about the absorptions, and what is it? We have now the amino acids are very precious. And if I have them, although I have a lot of them here in the intestine and lumen, I want every little thing. So I want to take it up against a gradient. And I use sodium co-transport. So you have secondary active transport with co-transport of sodium and the transporter here are different. They are not, we have 20 standard amino acids, as you know, so we don't have different transporter for each amino acids, but we have transporters that take a group of amino acids, and then they can overlap a little bit. So you will learn that if you are deficient in one amino acid transporter, another can help a little bit, but not always, and that's where you have uh, problems. So transporter are specific for a group and can be overlapping and now once it goes into the portal vein down here that is facilitated transporter. Are you with me so far? So although you have a lot of amino acids out there you don't want to not to get them all. That's why you have secondary active transport against a gradient but you have to have a uh, working uh, sodium-potassium ATPase. If you would inhibit this enzyme here by a drug, then you could not pick up the amino acids from the diet. All right. Now, we went into more detail with the protein digestion. Now let's go back to the carbohydrate digestion and have a big picture and go to a simplified part. At, again, in the mouth, we know salivary am alpha amylase degrades starch, and we have 
some glycogen to dextrins, isomaltose, and maltose. In the stomach, this stops as the stomach has a high proton concentration and alpha amylase is denatured, cannot work anymore. Now, in the small intestine where we have an adjusted pH, the pancreatic alpha amylase comes and forms isomaltose and maltose. And finally, at the brush border cells, we have disaccharidases, ases, enzymes that cleave disaccharides. And they cleave dietary lactose and sucrose. Glucose, fructose, and galactose are taken up by the intestinal mucosa cell. And again, who gets it? The liver. So again, protein digestion, all amino acid directly to the liver. Um, sugar, uh, carbohydrate digestion, all directly to the liver. The liver waits there, has GLU2, lets it all in. Then we have glucokinase, which traps it to glucose 6-phosphate. We have fructokinase, which traps fructose to fructose 1-phosphate. And we have galactokinase, which traps it to galactose 1-phosphate. So does it make sense? Yes. The liver has the function after a meal, especially after a carbohydrate-rich meal, there shall be not a strong overshoot in blood glucose levels. Still will happen, but depending on the glycemic index of the food, it's different. So here the liver gets them all. Cellulose cannot be digested, beta linkage. All right, and now let's look at the oligo and disaccharide digestion of brush borders. Sucrose, you know now, is glucose and fructose, and that enzyme is sucrase. Ace is the enzyme. Ose is the sugar. Sucrose is cleaved by sucrase and isomaltase. Lactose, the sugar, is cleaved by lactase into glucose and galactose, and maltose and oligosaccharides, they are cleaved by a maltase glucoamylase. So these are, you see this here already, I found this picture and I thought it makes it nice. If you see now, if you have diarrhea and you destroy the brush border, these enzymes are destroyed and will be lost in feces. So then you don't have them. And we will talk about it in secondary lactose intolerance. All right. Now, here is a summary. Carbohydrate digestion. We have the pancreatic alpha amylase. It acts on polysaccharides, oligosaccharides, and it generates maltose, isomaltose, and dextrins. These sugars are then finally degraded to glucose by the disaccharidases. Now, the dietary disaccharides just went through without being attacked until they reach the brush border. And there they find sucrase and lactase. Are you with me so far? Now, the lactose intolerance can happen when an individual cannot digest lactose as it normally is here, and I show it here on the cartoon, in the small intestine, we are supposed to cleave lactose to galactose and glucose. How do glucose and galactose, what's the fate of these normally? They are taken up via SGLT1 into the intestinal mucosa cell. So under normal conditions, they would never reach uh, lactose would never reach the large intestine. If you have lactose intolerance and the lactose is still there and not degraded as your lactase is not working efficiently, then the bacteria have a party. They have something that they haven't seen, lactose. And they you ha uh, make a lot of hydrogen gas and you have carbon dioxide generate, and you, the patient has abdominal uh, cramps, diarrhea, and flatulence. And you have, and that is for you as physician, you have osmotic diarrhea as the water is attracted 
and it is lost in the lumen of the large intestine. Now, we have a very rare congenital lactase deficiency. Congenital, it exists already at birth. What is the nutrient of a, of a baby? Milk, right? So, and what is the sugar that gives the energy? Lactose. So the babies, if you look at that, not directly after birth, but maybe one day after birth, they have the highest lactase activity in their lifetime. And then it goes down normally, as then after six months or so, milk will be substituted by, by solid food. And in many groups, uh, this leads to uh, a decline in lactase. Now, this baby is especially bad, uh, in a bad condition, as it does not have lactase when it should have the highest activity in its lifetime. It doesn't have it. So the mother is feeding the baby. Baby has cramps, severe diarrhea, very painful, bloating. And you see here the baby, and mother thinks, oh, it's still hungry, and feeds more milk. That can be a vicious cycle and can lead uh, to severe diarrhea, leading to death in a child. So once you know about it, then you uh, feed these uh, neonates with lactose-free formula as main food source here. This baby eventually will have, as an adult, lactose intolerance, but it survives. So that is, I wanted you to realize that this lactase, congenital lactase deficiency is mostly not grouped as lactose intolerant, as it's a very severe case. Can can lead to death in a baby, all right? Now here, primary lactose intolerance is very common. I said the amount of lactase over the years is strongly reduced, and about seven years old, then the majority of humans have a primary uh, lactose intolerant. So the lacto lactase is needed after birth, and then especially in areas where milk is not used as food for adults, then the body changed, and we know how this, how this genetically happened. And the synthesis of lactose, uh, lactase slows down. Very common in individuals of Asian, African, Native American heritage. Less common in European uh, heritage. And this has to do that their milk is a major food on adults. So there has been a change on the genetic level. Now, the diet for an individual with primary lactose intolerance should not include milk and ice cream. And they are high in lactose. And you see here, you can buy, you can buy that here in Grenada. You can have already lactose-free products. It's how you make it. You can have pills. And these two kids here, they enjoy the ice cream. They have either taken the pills or have lactose-free ice cream. Otherwise, the mother would say, don't do it. Okay, so that is, uh, I wanted you to realize that the primary lactose intolerance is a result of a normal decline after the milk is not food anymore in lactase synthesis. But in individuals and groups of, uh, where people eat and, and have milk as major food, somehow the changes have developed that they have a gen different genetic predisposition and they are not lactose intolerant. So this is primary lactose intolerance. And now I said we have secondary lactose intolerance and that is transient, that is just happening after you have damage of intestinal mucosal cells. I showed you the picture how these disaccharidases are kind of hanging there. And they, if you get rid of the mucosal cells, they are lost. And that can happen secondary lactose intolerance after food poisoning. Now, 
we still call it lactose intolerance, but what you cannot digest well is also sucrose, as all the disaccharidases are in this case gone. But we still call it lactose intolerance, secondary. So it could uh, result from severe diarrhea or gastroenteritis due to rotavirus, very common in children, and it can lead to intestinal injury, and after a while it will uh, go back to normal. Or in celiac disease, you know it's immune-mediated protein, uh, gluten uh, is a protein in grains, and this is, leads to damage of intestinal mucosal cells in uh, specific individuals. So that is secondary lactose intolerance. All right. Now we have talked about how we took up the amino acids by secondary active transport, and we said each amino acid there is valuable. I wanted to the last one. Similar dietary sugars. And the, uh, although we have a lot of glucose and galactose and fructose, we want each molecule, especially of glucose and galactose. And that's why glucose and galactose are taken up by SGLT1, also with sodium uh, co-transport. Fructose, as you know, we talked about it, goes via GLUT5 and, and they all enter via GLUT2, the portal vein. All right. Now, if we have finish up the digestion before we go to lipid digestion in the next lecture, let's look shortly at digestion and absorption of DNA and RNA. In the mouth, it's not digested. In the stomach, it's denatured. And eventually, we will cleave it in the small intestine by nucleases, phosphodiesterases, make mononucleotides. And Ribose, deoxyribose, and pyrimidine bases, they are finally taken up into the intestinal mucosal cells and reach the liver. What is not happening, and what I pointed out very early, purine bases are already degraded in intestinal mucosal cells to uric acid. And then uric acid is released into the blood and eliminated by the kidney. So here, uric acid is already formed in the intestinal mucosa itself. The liver does a lot of it, but it never even makes it to it. And here's another clicker question. All right, let's see how you did. Oh, very interesting. So here is the child. Mother tells him he shall all food except milk. How old is the child? Eight years old. I did not say it's an Asian child. That would make it very easy, but this is here for you to learn and discuss with each other. And um, which of the following is most likely? 
the correct answer is primary lactose intolerance. Hereditary lactase deficiency, he is not a baby. I mean, if, if that would be hereditary lactase deficiency, it would be mentioned in the stem. Yeah, it, it would be mentioned then at, at the, at the, as a baby he nearly died, but it would not be here like he is a normal health, he is a healthy boy. And that is the in, uh, implication here. All right? Good. And then I, let's make all 10-minute break. Thank you. Thank you. Just a sec. Hi, hi. Fine, thank you. Can't tell if it's working. Hello? Okay, hi everyone. Um, Kara and Maddie. Um, uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that there are donation boxes downstairs. Um, we're accepting any donations for Hurricane Irma.